Hello and welcome to Fork Tongues, conversations with foreigners living in France. I'm Derek Rawson, I'm from Australia, but I've been living in France for more than 10 years now. First in Paris and now in Poitiers. This is episode 14 of the Fork Tongues journey, but it's not going to be your usual Fork Tongues episode. Fork Tongues is going through somewhat of a transition period, mainly related to my investing in new, better sound equipment and learning how to use it, of course. So before hosting another conversation, I wanted to try something a bit different. I hope you'll come along with me. So here I am, sitting in my comfortable reading chair in the light-filled corner of my study. It's morning, so you might be able to hear the birds chirping outside my window. And while birds are not irrelevant to this episode, there will be more mention of birds appearing on French dinner plates than in French gardens. Regular listeners will know that of the many subjects I've discussed with my guests in this podcast, food has been one of the most recurrent, and one of my favourites too, I have to admit. We're talking about France, after all. So this episode is dedicated to French food, as seen, or perhaps I should say, experienced, lived, through the eyes, mouth and pen of one of my favourite writers, whose name has already been mentioned here on Fork Tongues, Jim Harrison. I'll be reading from his collection of food writings, The Roar and the Cooked, Adventures of a Roving Gourmand. The piece is titled 33 Angles on Eating French and was written in 1999. I should state up front that while I own the book, I don't own the rights, so I hope everyone will accept that my reading is for educational purposes only. And, in my opinion, reading Jim Harrison is always an entertaining education. So, I invite you to come along with me and spend a moment with Jim Harrison. 33 Angles on Eating French Maybe it's a sin to think about food so much especially about French food, which is so decidedly foreign to us in nature. We have to write from our own point of view, and mine is Calvinist Swedish Lutheran, at least in my childhood and up until I left home. The great Austrian poet Rainer Maria Rilke, who was thrilled when he discovered Quaker oats early in this century, wrote, What is fate but the density of childhood? Part of childhood is to eat what is set before you. Part of jumping off the porch and leaving home is to look for new things to put on the plate. I fled to New York City and discovered garlic at age 19. More than 40 years later, and sitting before the fire in my cabin in Michigan's Upper Peninsula, I just checked my garlic supply. Seven heads, enough for another few days at best. When the renowned French gourmand and writer Gérard Aubelet was at my home last October, I served him an ample bowl of oatmeal, partly in jest. His very large face pinkened as he shoved it away, Gérard does not eat cow food, he said with the giggle of an immense girl. He watched me eat my oatmeal with sympathy and curiosity. Why do you begin the day with punishment, he asked. I wanted to say, to live to eat another day, but all the evidence isn't in yet on this subject. Besides, Americans talk a big game with their countless self-improvement projects, but it is in France that I see people eating dozens of different vegetables, fruits and grains. They don't have to talk about it, because they do it. Balance is a matter of culinary tradition, not something that is prated about endlessly in magazines and the modern living pages of newspapers. This is a cultural inclination rather than a rule among the French. I am drawn to French food out of curiosity and pleasure rather than for health reasons. I am not a Francophile, a term that raises as many parodic images as Anglophile. Many of us have had professors who, after three months in France or England, would smoke a cigarette like Jean Gabin or wear a 30-buck tweed coat and affect an Oxonian accent. True Francophiles also have invariably collected dozens of places that are forever unavailable to whomever they are speaking. 
But of course, you fool. One only goes to Lubon in the last week of April. And I said lunch, not dinner. Lucette and Jacques are always out of sorts by dinner. Lucette's mother is a virago with goiter. Don't tell me you didn't meet her. That sort of thing. I find Paris a great deal friendlier than New York or Los Angeles. Of course there are irritations. There are even irritations in your own home, where you are presumably in control. The idea that a croissant or baguette with coffee is enough for breakfast strikes me as idiotic and certainly accounts for all the flaring tempers in France in the hour before lunch, by which time people are dazed by low blood sugar and howling with hunger pangs. Just the other day at my cabin, I took a two-hour stroll at dawn, then fished for twenty minutes or so, and then had the classic breakfast of beans, bacon and trout. Of course I'm not shuffling important papers on a desk, but the baguette and coffee must presume absolute non-movement. I've been advised so often in France to save myself for lunch, but what good is that if you have to sink your teeth into your arm for a pick-me-up? Yet after more than a dozen trips to France, and despite making a largest collection of French cookbooks and wine, I'm still not sure I've done any truly deep thinking on the subject of French food. This morning, in the spirit of privation caused by high blood pressure, high blood sugar, and mild gout, none of these, of course, triggered by a recent three-week trip to France, I began to wonder if eating in France doesn't adapt many of the attitudes the human race usually reserves for sport, albeit more sedentary sports, or games like bridge, pool, chess and poker. And I've often wondered if the legion of thin Parisians doesn't maintain the relentless habit of walking in order to get ready to eat. Sport, of course, requires mental dexterity, a trained body, and acuity for what's coming next, even if it's food. While cooking or waiting for a meal in a restaurant, Many of the French have the hard-edged concentration of Tiger Woods approaching a tee shot. Historically speaking, great cuisines, like Chinese and French, tend to emerge from economies of scarcity. We use the whole animal, has always been the motto of the innovative cook. As for myself, I have not shrunk from grilled pig's ears, though I prefer the tails. And two years ago in Burgundy, when Aubelé made me a tort of pig's noses, I was thrilled indeed. It is labour-intensive to prepare four dozen swine noses for the table. That leaves most of us out, including restaurants. Our food writers tell us that we and the English are beginning to achieve a level of restaurant parity with France. This is not quite laughable, and xenophobic if you consider that the food writers are talking about at most two dozen of our restaurants, in which, given a fat wallet, you can eat very well indeed. The claim also assumes ready access to New York, Los Angeles, San Francisco or Chicago, or to stellar culinary outposts like the Lark in Detroit or the Mansion in Dallas. The trouble is that there's no real fallback among our 10,000 other restaurants. Certainly you can occasionally manage an appreciable meal, but I keep thinking of a routier, a French truck stop where I had a wonderfully sautéed duck leg and thigh with potatoes nicely browned in goose fat with garlic. In the centre of the room was a serve-yourself counter heaped with an assortment of vegetable preparations, fresh lettuces, and a variety of shellfish and ice. A muscular woman emerged from the kitchen still whipping a very large bowl of fresh mayonnaise. The truckers sat at long tables in the back while we tourists were in front with a splendid view of their big trucks. This experience made me a little melancholy. How wonderful it would be to have this simple lunch on one of my aimless 7,000-mile car trips in the United States, or even in Los Angeles during a screenplay money trek. 
I don't want a skinless, boneless chicken breast served with a raspberry kiwi salsa devised by Chef Ralph. If you lacked a meat mallet, you could use the bottom of a laptop computer and make a reasonable payar out of this skinless, boneless chicken breast, and, with a classic sauce, serve it to your pooch, say my English setter Rose, who helps me gather true fowl, quail of four kinds, woodcock, and ruffed, sharptail, and Hungarian grouse. So if you can accept that we have a couple of dozen good restaurants in America, and you preferably live on one of our two dream coasts, and assuming you make several hundred thousand bucks a year, you can eat quite well beyond the confines of your own kitchen. And in big cities, you even have a fallback position in the ethnic restaurants, where a tradition is being carried on. But in the country as a whole, you need an as-yet-uninvented food compass. Available food guidebooks have a woefully low batting average. We're not necessarily talking about the fate of nations, but in a profligately fertile nation, my common experiences after thousands of restaurants is one of regret. You see fellow diners gagging with melancholy. Much has been made in recent years of the specific benefits of drinking red wine with rich meals and how the French beat heart disease with this pleasant method. Forgotten in this marvellous equation is the fact that the French appear much less stressed by the daily impedimenta that haunt us all because they presume they're always right. I've never been sure how sincere and deep this conviction is, but it is certainly an operative grace note. Doubt in itself ruins digestion. Blatant confidence is a wonderful lubricant for questionable behaviour not to speak of an ideal way to reduce stress, until it's an infinitesimal brainwort. My wife Linda and I were staying with Aubelet and his partner, Gilles Bresol, in Burgundy, not the fashionable wine-producing part of Burgundy, but to the west, in what must be called the cattle country, near the Morvan. It is a strain to think of all that Aubelet represents, beyond being a writer and dealer in rare books. Rather than using a prettier literary metaphor, I would say that he is the Michael Jordan of French cuisine, while Bresol is a deft point guard. In France, there is a good deal of resonance to the word gourmand, none of it pejorative, except in the minds of the emotionally dysfunctional. Back to the notion of the confidence of being right. Aubelet thought we might break up the routine of eating at his manoir, an overwhelming routine, and travel to Vézelay, where his friend Marc Menot is chef at his three-star L'Espérance. To make it a well-rounded experience, we visited the marvellous and unique Basilica Sainte Madeleine for at least 15 minutes before starting lunch with four smaller courses in the Garden of L'Espérance, proceeding going indoors for the larger items. We began with what looked like cubes of fried crouton, which you pop in your mouth and slowly break with your tongue, loosening the foie gras and truffles with which they're mysteriously stuffed. Next came a small packet that resembled something en croûte, but the enclosure was actually very thin roasted piglet skin wrapped around morsels of meat from the pig's tail and the tiniest fresh fava beans from the garden just over the wall near our table. Next we had a simple hollowed out potato containing a ragu of squab hearts and decorated with a sautéed rooster cockle stuck in the top. We cleansed our palates, as it were, with a bowl of chilled gazpacho in the middle of which was a dollop of mustard sorbet. Odd sounding, but it worked fine. On our way inside, my wife implied that we had already had more than enough. In a technical sense, she was right. But then again, we were having a luncheon feast, celebrating something or other, perhaps life herself, a real big mama who always urges us on to clean our plates. Inside the lovely main room, 
we were served an entire poached foie gras, accompanied by some beans and small pork bits that had been cooked overnight in a champagne bottle in the embers of a fireplace. Foie gras has always been tough on what's left of my system, but after ample amounts of Meursault, Nuit Saint-Georges, and Vaune Romanée, I felt appropriately that I was representing American honour, and was in no mood to shirk, though the next course, a hoche of sausage, fillet, oxtails, and marrow, very nearly finished me, even before my favourite French dish of all, the legendary poulard demi-deuil. Translated freely, this means chicken in half mourning, because black truffle slices are stuffed up under the whole chicken skin to give it a funereal look, not because it's dead, but because it's enshrouded with this rapturous fungus. Now I was quite full, and barely managed my rhubarb tort. We also shamefully skipped the cheese course, using as an excuse that the day was over warm, not certainly that we had had too much to eat. In the spirit of being right, it is quite inevitable that you have eaten the appropriate amount. After this five-hour lunch, we mutually agreed that we should skip supper when we got home, though Aubelé was a little dubious about this heresy. Let's step back more than a little, though our range is less than infinite, since it is impossible, despite the hyperbole of professional food writers, to speak of food in a cosmic context. Perhaps it is even inappropriate to use the same adjectives with food that we do for Mozart and Gauguin. If the veal chop is marvellous, what do we have left for Van Gogh? Quite a puzzle, and it bespeaks again our limitations with language, rather than the limits of language itself. When we read a newspaper every day, not to speak of magazines, we see that common print usage is a blunt tool indeed. Yet who cares if language is a big net between us and food? It certainly is a smaller net than the one between us and God, women and nature. There is also the palliative that if language rouses our appetite, we can always trot off to the kitchen and make something to eat. Right now, at my cabin, I'm bathing a half chicken in a full head of chopped garlic, lemon juice, olive oil and hot peppers. Utterly ordinary in my scheme of things. Immutable nature is right outside the window, not to speak of inside my skin, but at the moment God and women are somewhere out there, beyond viable usage. Food, quite wonderfully, is in your face. A very young child can be quite violent and captious about food, forcing parents to become Calvinist bullies. Such clean-your-plate fascism is apparently contributing to our country's large proportion of real fatties. Rather than the tack of, you must grow and get big, the French tend to coax their children by convincing them that the food tastes good. In my own case, I suppose I truly am my rural-born father's son, as he favoured fish and game, homemade sausage, and the freshest vegetables. He was an ardent gardener. Other than dried salt cod and herring, the only fish readily available in our area were those we caught ourselves. I still eye and sniff cynically the product in fish markets, having so often eaten my own fresh fish, often within hours, if not minutes, of making the catch. There has been a recent, though perhaps waning, craze in our urban centres for certain ordinary food items, such as meatloaf and mashed potatoes. These items are spoken of condescendingly as comfort food, as if the resident chefs transcended these plebeian items on a regular basis. Only they don't. Try finding in our restaurants a good roasted or pan-fried chicken, a simple piece of peerlessly fresh sautéed fish, items that are ubiquitous in France. 
I managed to have a fine roasted poussin at Lutèce years ago when the chef was the grand André Soltner, who said in reference to the current, often silly innovations of younger chefs, I myself have never devised a recipe. I simply cook French food. Well, yes and no. Obviously, some innovation is critical, or a tradition atrophies, withers, and is of interest primarily to food antiquarians. Chefs such as Alain Ducasse and Marc Menot have gone their own way, much in the way of an experimental novelist who, after all, is still writing novels. I feel more comfortable and curious at Menot's L'Espérance than I do at such a temple of gastronomy as Taïvan. In the latter, seven of us managed a tab of $2,800, mostly because we became ditzy with the wine list. You don't go to Taïvan because you are hungry, but because you wish to be teased back into comprehending a classic tradition. You are eating Stendhal, as it were. At L'Espérance, you are eating a French version of Gabriel Garcia Marquez, where the clarification of the French tradition is radical indeed. The taste for one of these restaurants over the other is mostly a matter of temperament. Great restaurants are not in a sack race, except in the minds of food ninnies. It's mid-August and the weather is cool and rainy after a dismally hot, humid summer. I have put away my rather shabby fishing gear. Part of geezerdom is not to throw away one's favourite old equipment and clothes, though you would certainly throw away letters and photos of old girlfriends because you are finally worth divorcing. This week, along with writing, an evil profession, I'm working my English setter bitch, Rose, twice a day for a total of at least three hours. Much of the Upper Peninsula is rather rough, summoning up a sturdier appetite than, say, a day of meetings in L.A. or New York, where babbling lips burn few calories. This morning at seven, I put my estouffade de boeuf, a somewhat generic beef stew from the Camargue region of southern France, in the oven. I say generic because a half dozen recipes I have for this dish vary the ingredients a bit, though they usually include lesser cuts of beef, much garlic, a few tomatoes, red wine, a few anchovies, herbs, and Provençal olives. You cook it for hours and hours at low heat. After literally hundreds of attempts, I have accepted the fact that I'm not a very good French cook. This realization was slow in coming. I'm a bit better when I'm not writing because the parallel universe of fiction is not conducive to the attentiveness required for even average French cooking. It's a little like a surgeon trying to handle his investments without advice. The illusion that because you're good at one thing, you're inevitably good at others is relentlessly comic. Jordan played baseball like Leonard Nimoy sings ballads. It's now five o'clock, and I'm on my second glass, a 12-ouncer of Gigondas, a Côte Durand I favour. I just tested my estouffade, really quite good, though it occurred to me that I had forgotten to blanch the salt pork, an uncalled-for ingredient, that I'd used to brown the beef, so it's a tad salty. I yelled motherfucker rather than sacré bleu. French recipes lack the forgiving nature of barbecue. When my French friends arrive, I barbecue with my special source of lust and violence. The dish makes them loud-mouthed and dumb, the way it makes us. It once cost me 600 bucks to get a Weber grill to Aubelin de Burgundy, which was a lesson in free trade. The dinner is very good, accompanied by some fresh green beans from my wife's garden. I used to say our garden, but I mostly look over the fence. While eating, I think of food and become melancholy about the best first course of my life. It took place at the Passada, a restaurant in the Hotel Le Petit Nice in Marseille. 
It looked like a crab cake, but in fact it was a lightly bound patty of the meat of fresh frog's legs, held together by paper-thin pralines of pork and served with a tablespoon of creamy garlic sauce. American ponds are full of frogs, but we don't use them in this transcendent manner. I'd be proud to be a bullfrog who bit the big one in this fashion. very cool dawn, and there is a sense that I may have forgotten, on purpose of course, to thoroughly defat my estufade. We peasants need our fat for the rigours of our labour, but then I recall I'm not quite a peasant anymore. I awoke with Rose staring me in the face, which was bathed by her unpleasant breath. A Lothario, I know, claims that vegetarian girls smell and taste better. This is the sort of claim that cries out for government or foundation-funded research, but I am passing the project on to younger writers who, swamped in the ironies of obtaining their MFAs, are crying out to return to Earth, to sink themselves in reality pudding. Meanwhile, as my errant mind would have it, I'm involved in the ideological struggle between process and content in American and French cuisines. The profit is in a process, non-labor-intensive, that makes minimal content sufficiently appealing. This is the law of fast food, and there's a smidgen of it in any restaurant and more than a smidgen in chains that pretend to be non-fast food, but where there's only a few oafs in the kitchen manning the microwaves. But then we have all sensed the fraudulence in most of our restaurant food, even though we can overlook the main principle behind it, identified so gracefully by the great Tuscan writer Umberto Eco. Americans are spectacular at imitating the genuine, and in this case it is more profitable to imitate genuine food than produce it. These thoughts are pushing me back toward my bed, but the NPR news is discussing a Turkish earthquake catastrophe, and I wonder again why I bother accessing, moment by moment, all the bad news in the world. My oatmeal looms, a viable penance to begin the day, followed by two more sea memories. First, a ray du beurre I had at La Cajou, a French bistro in New York City. This is a well-browned chunk of skate or ray wing, full of the tender little intriguing cartilages that enable this creature to move along like an enormous underwater bird. This is followed by memories of Carcassonne, both William Faulkner's marvellous story and the city itself, sitting nobly on its ancient battlements, where I managed one of the most monstrous cases of indigestion in my life after eating an, <laughs> in my life after eating an entire cochon du lait, a whole tiny piglet cooked five different ways, and arranged artfully on the platter at a fine restaurant called Barbacon. Much of the impulse behind my eating is aesthetic, but then occasionally a sort of overdrive kicks in, and there's mum and grandma standing behind me howling for me to clean my plate. It's clearly their fault, but also my own, if I cannot liberate myself from their dire influence. Moving west and south of Carcassonne in my mind's eye, I ponder Basque cuisine. That's it. For dinner, I'll make a simple poulet basquez, the chicken parts, the sacred thighs, nestled in their comforting bed of eggplant, mushrooms, red and green peppers, a head of garlic, and so on. A perfect marriage of process and content. If you don't have an hour to cook your dinner, quit your job. I recently read in the New York Times about some young brokers who don't have time to buy toilet paper, so they go without. There are culinary traps in Paris that must be avoided. 
I've learned that you really can't manage two large meals a day without imperiling your well-being. Have some not-so-simple fish for lunch, say at Le Racamier or Maison Prunier, or the best sole I've ever had, which was at that temple of conspicuous consumption, the Ritz, or a simple lunch at Benoit's. Above all else, you must walk two or three hours a day in this, the finest walking city on earth. Of course, sometimes nothing helps. You struggle along the sidewalk watching French women click-clicking past you, their high gorgeous bottoms rubbing cheeklets together in those soft thin wool skirts. Your roiling tummy can't keep up with them. There ought to be a speed limit for these walkers. Once I was strolling off lunch along Rue Saint-Jacques after closely examining a number of meat and fish markets along Rue Bussy. Just because you are full doesn't mean you lose immediate interest in food. Perhaps trenchermen, gourmands, are teeth before they are born, or at least gum their way into the world, and for them only more approaches enough. Anyway, I glanced into a nondescript cafe, and there was Francis Ford Coppola, working on a dreaded laptop. He looked up, waved, and said, I have just the place for us to eat, rather than, Hello, how are you? Isn't art wonderful? The next evening, a bunch of us went to L'Ami Louis, including Danny DeVito and Russell Crowe. Francis, as a very full-blown food bully, did the ordering. I didn't mind because I'm a food bully and an amateur nutritionalist myself, doling out advice as I smoke and drink several bottles of life-giving red wine. I had been advised that L'Ami Louis catered to Americans and wasn't what it used to be. Nothing is. Nothing ever was. Francis ordered our table of eight a gross of snails, a platter of foie gras, a leg of lamb, and some chickens, among other goodies. The restaurant was exclusively stuffed with French. The meal went on and on. Jack Nicholson once said to me, and it bears repeating, that only in the Midwest is overeating still considered an act of heroism. If so, Coppola would be an honorary homeboy of the heartland, and so would Orson Welles, who on a number of occasions made me feel like a gaunt Mary Poppins. We had a dozen or so bottles of fine Bordeaux, and Coppola directed the check to DeVito, not because he had eaten the most, but because one of the finer Hollywood traditions is that whoever is doing best that year picks up the tab. I was sure it exceeded the recent bill at Taivon, but as an invité, I wasn't concerned. A less pleasant Hollywood tradition is when the star gets 50 times what a writer does for making the whole thing up. I was secretly delighted when an angry studio head said to me, You're just a writer. In my experience, French food in L.A. has been curiously soulless, except for the old, now-defunct Marmation, which was Orson Welles' local favourite, and a recent experience at the little door on Melrose was very pleasant indeed. Last evening, after an over-ample portion of my poulet basquets, I ran Rose on grouse and woodcock for an hour. She ran too far into a rather nasty swamp and went on an immovable point. A half dozen grouse were roosting in trees and Rose's stiff head drooled. I barely made it out by dark, so this morning I chose a more wide open area called the Kingston Plains where she managed to point a pair of sandhill cranes and then a single sharp tailed grouse. Near a lake we sat and watched an osprey catch a fish and eat it without salt and pepper. This arduous two-hour hike gave me yet another new lease on life, and at the grocery store I bought a bottle of salt-free ketchup as a gesture toward bodily perfection. 
True, I'll never be one of those fey, scrawny yuppies you see in male clothing ads, but surely I can slow the natural progress of deliquescence. I have been eating so much garlic that last night I thought my flatulence might propel me off the bed and onto the hard floor, where an injury was certainly possible. I have been meditating on my own mediocrity. Almost consciously, I summon up a justified feeling of humility about my cooking. I have studied the work of great chefs such as Menot, Fernand Point, Ducasse, Joël Robuchon, and Olivier Rollinger, and read the work of Waverley Root, Elizabeth David, Paula Wolfert, Patricia Wells, Alice Waters, and Richard Olney. But all of it comprises head knowledge. The culinary arts are no more democratic than the others, and sincerity of intent is worth about as much as last night's flatulence. Great and good cooks serve a very long apprenticeship. I've been studying how to write for 40 years, and I'm still learning. My cooking is similar too, but less in quality than those hot new American chefs who are innovative before they learn the language. It is similar to thinking you can write French poetry after a couple of years of college French. Get down on your knees, preferably before the sacred stove rather than a dysfunctional cheerleader or your own errant cooking ego. Even your departed mother-in-law, a torturous virago, could cook better than you can. There, this lesson may last well into the next day. A certain daffiness is in order, in both work and play, cooking included. Maybe what we call dignity is only faux republican indifference. Once, in the kitchen of a considerable chateau in Normandy, about 25 years ago, I watched Christian Audasso, the brother-in-law of my friend Guy de la Valdenne, prepare an asparagus souffle, buried in which were seven whole eggs that poached as the souffle rose. Audasso made a map so that when he portioned out the souffle, none of the eggs would be broken. This was all the more extraordinary because we were all quite stoned, marijuana being basically a nerve medicine in those days. Like mountains for climbers and rivers for kayakers, recipes have levels of difficulty, and that one remains unthinkable for me. Eating in French homes is a radically different experience from the restaurants. In a home, you have removed the overwhelming motive of profit. Restaurants are for hopeful, carefree pleasure and convenience, also for dishes that are complicated and beyond one's range of cooking talent. For instance, I have a passion for tête de veau, the tongue, cheeks, brains and neck meat of a calf, but have seen it made in a home only once, and that was at Guy de la Valdenne's when he had inherited his mother's French chef, Richard Labbé. For six months. It's not necessarily appetite enhancing to see a Holstein calf's head lowered slowly into a bubbling pot. The final result was indeed delicious, but the process had been a little onerous. Once when I arrived at Aubelais in the autumn, I noted an ample bowl of black truffles. I said, Gérard, you shouldn't have, and he replied, but I have no heirs. This is the true spirit of generosity. I tend not to think of the best restaurants in my life, but the best individual dishes, no matter where they are cooked. At Aubelais, there have been at least a dozen, from his preparations of whole foie gras to his coq au vin, you must have a rooster for this dish, to his poulet demi-deuil, to his tiny lamb legs en croute, not to speak of his colleague Brezot's vegetable dishes. Another time, my publisher, Christian Bourgois, made me some wonderful niçoise farci at his home. This is vegetables stuffed with various force meats, emphasizing again that the food of southern France is easier on the system. 
This, of course, assumes that you are willing to eschew outright gluttony. Once on a food tour of the South with my friend de la Valdenne, we had strictly limited our food budget to $1,000 a day, but went well over this limitation every day for a week. It would have been worse, but Guy had been attacked by a crustace sauvage, bad shellfish, and was off his feed for a couple of days, during which he mostly watched me, with his large, glowering, Gallic eyes, eat. Lulu Perrault is in her early 80s and lives at Domaine Tompier, a vineyard in Provence that she and her late husband, the fabled Lucien, founded. I've been through at least 50 cases of their bondole, so you must trust me. Lulu is at a pinnacle of home cooking, which means a great deal in this case. Alice Waters and Richard Olney did a cookbook revolving around Lulu's kitchen, which itself revolves around a very large wood range. Yup, wood. I recall standing there while she grilled a hundred mussels for a few minutes until they popped open, then added a touch of Le Beau olive oil to each. I've eaten at Lulu's home on two occasions, and I'm rather haunted by this vineyard. The house and garden still seem turn of the century. The Provencal light is diffused by the granitic mountains, and the estate is so close to the Mediterranean that there is a salty tinge to the violet-blushed air. It was at Lulu's that I ate four dishes that were the best of their kind a Provençal d'aube, a beef stew, a soup de poisson, a seven-pound snapper wrapped in grape leaves, soaked in olive oil and garlic, and cooked slowly on the wood grill, and two tiny legs of lamb, about two pounds apiece, not the mutton we are sold as lamb, braised with the smallest fresh April vegetables, including artichokes. At one endless lunch with Olney, and the wine importer Kermit Lynch and his wife Gail, a photographer, I tasted a 15-year succession of bondol, after which I was taken to Marseille to chat before a thousand or so folks. This didn't exactly pan out, as they say. Eat or die was the motto of a food column I used to write. Who can quallow with the profundity of this logic? By eating, I don't mean banal pit stops for an injection of fuel, but something more appropriate to the putative human spirit, something to which you can bring your curiosity and enthusiasm. Even dogs love good food. Rub a piece of steak with garlic, fry it in butter, and give it to your pooch. The dog will clearly say, this beats the shit out of kibble. And a nice slice of fresh foie gras, not the canned kind, will make the dog shiver in admiration for you, in a way that no woman ever has, not even when you spring for a three-carat emerald. However, as I rediscovered this morning, these Frenchified treats do not ensure obedience. Rose busted a grouse covey that wouldn't hold, and became something like an unguided missile. She reminded me of those wayward wives on their bowling nights in small midwestern cities, pure naughty. Instead of being pissed at Rose, I sat against a stump, my brow furrowing over what I might make for dinner. The day was too warm to make lamb shanks with white beans and garlic, a dish I had had in Auvergne, and the heat made it impossible to run the dog far enough to merit the meal. A cassoulet, for instance, requires three hours of walking before dinner so you can eat the dish and an hour afterward to digest it. Brandy or calvados helps somewhat, but without the walking your dream life will become the tormented march of dead meat. I glanced around at the passing clouds and figured the approximate distances to some of my favourite restaurants about 400 miles to Gibson's in Chicago, and about 1,200 to Gotham and Babo, Gramercy Park, 
or Elaine's from my habitual massive veal chop with spinach sautéed in oil and garlic. It was something like 5,000 miles to my 77 favourite places to eat in France. My agent and long-term friend, Bob Datilla, has frequently remarked that it's too bad you can't drive to France. I agree, and not because I share his Sicilian fear of flying, actually shared by all ethnic groups, but because riding in a wheelbarrow would be generally more pleasant. Occasionally, I'm able to wangle a first-class ticket on Air France, where the food and wine are more than acceptable, but as a proletarian I find the expense, to whomever, quite embarrassing, if endurable. I ended up making a simple whitefish chowder, using an ample amount of salt pork, a staple of both sets of my grandparents, but my heart was with Olivier Rollinger at Maison de Bricourt in Concale. The spider crab tambal, the tandoori monkfish, the huge wild oysters with fresh morals, the lobster grilled with West Indian spices, the Saint-Pierre with lemongrass bouillon and baby favas, the mango and passion fruit with crème anglaise. That's basically all, not counting the lynchbage and the meursault. I'd even settled for the five different kinds of head cheese we bought from the renowned butcher, Fernand Dusser, and his shop in Arleuf in the Morvan. Or a plate of simple charcuterie from Les Mouettes near my hotel in Paris. An ideal lunch after you get off a plane, shower and stroll. I think it all began with a number of mystifying experiences at the old Brittany du Soir in New York in the early 1960s. I recall when I was a poet lackey at the State University at Stony Brook, taking a visiting French poet, Jean Guillevic, from Bretagne to the Brittany du Soir. He demonstrated to me just how much a poet should properly eat and drink. From that point on, I could never resume my career as a male model. Oh God, what should we do? We're hungry at least a couple of times a day, and why should we eat like denatured cows? Throughout the world, folks are eating different things, requested by billions of different voices, driven by billions of perceptibly different brains. Evan Jones, in his fine and compendious American food, tells us what some of us here used to eat. But it is the French who have specific answers, followed by the Chinese and the Italians. This is the age of all sorts of odious and banal lists, but in this case I'm right, and anyone who disagrees is wrong. On the last night of a recent trip to France, I wanted to go to L'Assiette Lulu for the great blood sausage Parmentier, among other things. But then, because I'm a memory buff, I recalled I had been there the night before. In my room, I studied two menus of 24 and 47 courses that Aubelet had devised for friends, both meals taking place at L'Espérance. They made me feel like a melancholy little piker in the face of the glories of extreme French cuisine besides which we are all children here in America. Of course, we're in the driver's seat, but there is no map to indicate where we're going, though it demonstrably isn't toward fine cuisine. This last night in Paris, I settled on taking Datilla and his friend Betsy to a restaurant of the Sud-West, hearty food, Toumieux, which I had been to a dozen times. It's over near the Invalide, decidedly non-haute cuisine, and is favoured by writers and generals. Datilla is a heavy eater, and besides, I was going home the next day, so I ordered some grilled fresh sardines, snails, foie gras, a roasted guinea hen, cassoulet, and a porterhouse. The waiter, who knew me, was slightly appalled, but I explained that I was returning to the great north, far from any French food, and then he commiserated. 
Poor poet, he said, patting my bony shoulder. I'm pretty sure there's bone in there. Thank you, Jim Harrison. I hope you all out there enjoyed 33 Angles on Eating French.